0: You are always calling us. You are a God that pursues us because you love us in ways that we cannot even comprehend, although we try and we get better, of course, Lord. But you call us, Lord, and your arms are open wide and we we understand that. But Lord, sometimes we live like it's not true. And so we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, that we would indeed run to you more often because your arms are indeed open wide to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you receive our praise. Lord, thank you that you receive the the work that we do for you, Lord, sometimes even in our brokenness and in our shortcomings, Lord, and you receive it. Lord, help us to be better at that, we pray. We love you so much, Lord. It's so good to worship you and to be together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Traveling Groups. Yeah. Enjoy your breakfast. That's a great message all by itself, man. That's a great message all by itself. Hey, we just want you to hear that we are going to make a big deal, a big deal about small groups, what we call community groups. And you're going to see that over the next five and six weeks, okay? So that was just a little teaser for you guys. Um, if you were here last weekend, you had the privilege the, the joy of, of getting to listen to Pastor Drew preach for the first time here at, at our church. yeah, it was pretty awesome. so i 'm just going to let you do it again. Um, we are doing his ordination this weekend, so um, i 'm going to invite up Pastor Drew and, and um, challenge him and challenge you as a church family um, as we ordain our our dear brother so um, I love moments like this. It's just another magnificent moment at the Rock Community Church, another opportunity to be blown away by the handiwork of our Lord. God has always called his workers to ministry, and he continues to do the exact same thing today. Our Lord called people like Abraham, Moses, Peter, Paul, just to name a few, and he called them to particular ministries. In the same way, he calls us to specific ministries in service to our awesome Lord. Many of you are called to service, and you do serve, and the Lord recognizes that because he's called you. And while it is always a blessing to learn or talk about God's provision to his people, it is especially joyful to experience tangible moments like today, where we see the hand of our faithful Lord giving generously yet again to those that follow him and serve him and love him. We are here to recognize and ordain Drew Hunsley as a pastor of the Rock Community Church along with his wife, Carrie, and their four amazing children, we clearly see this family as being sent to us from the Lord, a blessing and a gift to the Lord's church, to you guys. I'm, I'm sure I speak for all of us, Pastor Drew, in that we look forward to being ministered by you in all the ways that the Lord has called and gifted you to do so. But I also look forward to this church being a blessing to you and to your family. I hope and pray that we can come alongside you and your family and minister to you in practical ways so that you experience the joy of serving the Lord in the context of the church community. I challenge you, church, to keep this family in your prayers at all times. Will you do that for them? So what is ordination? Ordination is simply a declaration by the leadership of of this church that Drew has earned our confidence and our endorsement for specific forms of ministry. Ordination recognizes that the elders have had plenty of time to interview, observe, and experience the biblical qualifications of Drew Hunsley as spelled out in Holy Scripture. It also recognizes Drew, that you are committing to a life of integrity and highest ethics and that you are ready to live that kind of life. Ministry simply demands a higher standard. With that being said, Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12, and 13 say this. It says, it, it was the Lord who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people, you guys, for works of service so that the entire body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of of the fullness of Christ. And so the Lord orchestrated this for the body of Christ. Drew, I'm going to ask you some questions that I would like for you to seriously consider before you reply. Drew, you have been called to this biblical ministry. First question, have you considered seriously this biblical ministry to which you are called? I have. Second question, will you strive to encourage the church and others to a saving and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ? Will you remain faithful to the teaching of Scripture, teaching the whole counsel of God as you teach within this church? I will. Drew, you do not enter this ministry alone, but you have the help and the support of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the great cloud of witnesses in heaven, and you have this church. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come today with praise, O God that Jesus died for us, and that we may bring our lives to him in return. We are thankful for this, your servant, who offers himself to the ministry of Christ. Grant, Pastor Drew, the spirit of wisdom that he may know you better. May his heart be enlightened by your word. May his feet be swift with the gospel of peace, his hands outstretched toward those in need, and his tongue ready with the message of Jesus Christ. May Drew, may his communication always be true to your word and his life consistent with his words. When discouragement comes, uphold him. In his successes, shield him from pride. May he fear God rather than man. Lord, work through Drew to do your will, to bring others to Christ, to build up the church, to extend the kingdom of righteousness. Be his constant companion, Father, and may he also be yours. May his life cause many to find salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's him through whom we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Blessings, brother. (laughs) I'm sure many of you, as you've gotten to know Pastor Drew, know this already, and you'll know it more as you get to know him more. That's a good man. He is a good good, man. He is a good godly man. He is a wise man. And he's a humble man. And we are very fortunate. We're blessed to have you, brother. Okay. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited. I am so pumped about today's word, man. So if you guys like to have fun, you're in the right place. If you like to be challenged, you're in the right place, okay? So we're going to do a couple things. We're going to be, we're in... um, Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're in verses 6 through 10, five verses. And so we're going to hit those verses, and at the same time, we're going to be looking at things in an overview um, of this letter, the three chapters of 2 Thessalonians, okay? So uh, if you like taking notes, this is going to be a great day for you. Let me open up with this story. There was a, a woman named Maria, and she had recently broken off her relationship with a gentleman by the name of Jimmy. And she expressed to him that she simply didn't want to be with him any longer. Wah, wah, wah. Well, roughly a year had passed since their breakup, and out of the blue, Maria wrote to Jimmy. And she said this. She said, Jimmy, I miss you terribly. I think of you all day long and all night long. You dominate my mind, and I just don't know if I can be apart from you one day longer. Jimmy, let's reconnect. P.S., congratulations on winning the lottery, Clearly, Maria's character is impure. Clearly, she's probably even in sin, if you will. And that speaks a little bit to our text for today. I want to go ahead and read that. If you're you're not there already, go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's read verses 6 through 10, where we see some bad character of those within the church. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10. And then next week... We finish 2 Thessalonians, and then we go into the book of Deuteronomy, which I am pretty juiced about. So if you have the time, try reading Deuteronomy in one sitting. It'll take about three or four hours. But I would encourage you to do it if you can. Okay, starting in verse 6. Now we, being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we command you, brethren, so he's speaking to the brothers and sisters in the church. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so then he invokes the name of Christ, that you keep away from other brothers and sisters in Christ, from every brother or sister who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So in other words, according to truth. Verse 7, for you yourselves know, so now what Paul is going to do, he's going to talk about their own example in the next three verses. So they're introducing the problem in verse 6. And then they're going to give an example, a good example. For you yourselves know how you, you ought to follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined or an unruly manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to this, which we'll talk about later, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And then it goes back to the unruly ones. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Okay, let's pray. Lord Almighty, we are just so grateful to be here. What a privilege we get to gather as a family, brothers and sisters in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can worship you, that we can hear from your holy word, Lord, that you desire to continue to shape us, and Lord, that when you do, when we allow you to shape us, Lord, that our lives are just so much better because of it. And so, Father, we open up our hearts and our lives to you this morning and ask, Holy Spirit, that you have your way with us. As I like to say, Lord, we just, we pause, we pause all the stuff that's going on in our lives, Lord, we pause for you to worship you and to hear from you and to learn from you, Lord. Lord. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Okay, so let me give you some context. It's obvious context, but let's do that nonetheless. We're in 2 Thessalonians. That comes right after 1 Thessalonians, right? There's a 1 Thessalonians and a 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is quite simply, it's a follow-up letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, In 1 Thessalonians, we find a church that is living out their faith with excellence. Do you remember that? And from 1 Thessalonians, he's saying, you guys are living out your faith with excellence. And yet in that first letter, two times, what does Paul say to them? You're living your life with excellence, your Christian life with excellence, but twice he says to them what? Excel still more. Wow. So then Paul, in his second letter... He opens his second letter by commending them for doing exactly that. He opens up 2 Thessalonians saying, you have indeed excelled still more. What a great way to open up that second letter. Go to chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians so we can see that Paul does just that. Chapter 1, verse 3. So after his uh, very typical greeting in verses 1 and 2, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. Ought always means we're obligated. We are obligated to give thanks to God for you, as is only fitting. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged, and your love for each other is growing ever greater. He said that I told you to excel still more, and you've done just that. And so he commends them. Okay. However... The letter goes on to address an issue that had arisen within the church. This is shocking, I know. A church with issues. A church that Paul founded with issues, no less. Say it isn't so. Turn to chapter 2 now of 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 5. Let's see how this issue starts to unfold. So I'm going to be giving you some puzzle pieces and we're going to put this all together. Now we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So now he's saying, hey, there's some misinformation. There's an issue about understanding the rapture and the the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Let's continue. That you not be quickly shaken. So somebody's trying to upset the church. Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. By one of three things, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So some people in the church were confused and thought that the day of the Lord had, they were in the midst of that or they would missed it. Okay. Verse three, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that's the Antichrist, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So they forgot some things. Okay. So, where am I at? I lost track. Okay, so let's explore the reason for the issue in the church, okay? So Paul's saying, hey, there's some misinformation about the the rapture of the Lord, there's some misinformation about the day of the Lord, so let's revisit verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he says, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, and then verse 3 says, don't be deceived. Is that the reason for the issue? Is it the spirit? Is it the message? Is it this letter? Is it the deception? Is that the the issue that Paul's addressing? Maybe, but I say no. Look, the issue really is in verse 5. Let's reread verse 5. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? See, the issue is that there's always going to be spirits that are trying to tell us lies, messages that are lies, right? letters that are lies. There's always going to be misinformation. There's always going to be Satan trying to deceive us. So verses 2 and 3 say those things can happen if you do verse 5, if you forget the truth. That's the real issue, is a forgetfulness of truth. The reason for the issue was not deception. It wasn't lack of information. It wasn't bad information, it wasn't a poor interpretation of information, it was that they forgot some information. You see the difference? Okay. So, check this out. I think it would be fascinating to be tested on our Bible knowledge. I think it would be fascinating if we can be tested on our Bible knowledge, but not the test that you think I'm thinking of. Not to be tested on what you know, but to be tested on what you've forgotten. Wouldn't that be interesting if we could be tested on all the things that at one point we knew about God and about scripture, but that somehow we have forgotten. They're having an issue because, not because of what they knew, but because of what they had forgotten. Paul says, do you not remember? We talked about this when I was there with you, but they had forgotten. I think it's interesting. Interesting. Go to 2 Peter, a little to your right, after Hebrews and James. Go to the right of your your Bible. Hebrews, James, then you have 1 and 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. So Peter says this this is fantastic. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Huh. Continue. And have been established in the truth, which is present with you. You know them, it's with you, and I'm going to remind you, and remind you, and remind you, and remind you. Because when you forget, bad things can happen verse 13 he says i consider it right as long as i am in this earthly dwelling that means his body to stir up to stir you up by way of reminder i'm going to do it all the time church verse 14 knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent he knows he's going to die soon physically as also our lord jesus christ has made clear to me verse 15 and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. That's the whole key. The reason for the reminder and the reminder and the reminder and the reminder so that you can call those things to mind when you need to. We cannot be reminded enough. We can't. So here's just one practical application for you as a church. If or shall I say when, I preach an entire sermon and you learn absolutely nothing. You have one of two things. You can come up to you and say, I learned nothing. Or you can say, Pastor, thank you for the reminder. See the difference? That's your practical application. And that's okay. It's like, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. That's fantastic. That's what Paul says. We need to be reminded so that we can recall things in the moments that we need to. I love that. Church, let's not shun reminders, let's embrace them. Don't shun the reminders, let's embrace reminders. Okay, I want to go back to our text. Let's go back to Second Thessalonians. Let's reread verses 6 through 10. 6 and 10 are the, are the unruly ones, 7, 8, and 9 are the good example, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So you got verses 6 and 10 are the unruly believers in the church, and 7, 8, and 9, in the middle of these unruly ones, are the good example, Paul and Silas and Timothy. So just think about it that way. Let's go to verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he's talking to the church, that you, church, keep away from those in the church every brother who leads an unruly life. And not according to the tradition which you received from us. And then they talk about themselves. For you yourselves, church, you know how you ought to follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. So that you would follow our example. And then it goes back to the unruly ones. For when we were with you physically, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Okay. So what's the issue here? The issue is we're starting to put all the pieces together. Doctrinal error. They were, they were in error in some of their doctrine. Doctrinal error concerning the day of the Lord had led to disorderly conduct in the church. Okay. One way to think of it, this way. If you're bad with content, bad with doctrine, bad with scripture, there's a good chance you're going to be bad with conduct. If you are doctrinally in error, then you're probably going to have some sort of disorderly conduct. That's really the takeaway from this. If you're bad with content of scripture, there's a good chance you're going to be bad with conduct of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves according to scripture. That's what's taking place here. Consider this. There are many, not just in this church, there are many in the churches all across the globe, many in the church who are actually quite, quite, quite good, excellent at content. They know God's Word. They're elders, they're pastors, they're small group leaders, they're they're ministry team leaders, whatever that is, and they're excellent and quite good at content, and yet they still stumble in their conduct. It happens. How much more so are we at risk if we're bad with content? If we're good with content, we're not exempt from bad conduct. Sometimes that happens. But how much more are we at risk if we're bad with content in our conduct? Okay? So, for sure, getting good doctrine into the church is imperative. It's imperative. We need good doctrine in the church. We need need good Bible-preaching preachers. But just as critical as that is what? Remembering it. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. Yes, we need, good, we need God's Word. We need good preaching, good teaching, good doctrine. But we have to remember what His Word says so that we can act it out in a time of need. So what is your plan for remembering? Well, oftentimes we have a plan for learning, but do we have a plan for remembering? Do we, do we take notes? Do we reread those notes? Do we, do we memorize Scripture? How do we remember When I got saved at 15, I was told to memorize scripture. And so for years, I just memorized scripture because that's what I was told to do. And it turned out that it really came in handy, right? For me and for others. What's your plan for remembering? How much have we forgotten? I wonder how much we've forgotten in all the years that we've served the Lord. I wonder if there was a way to measure that. It's like, wow, you've learned a lot, but pretty much everything you've learned, you seem to have forgotten That's not a good thing, right? How do we remember? Is there any disorderly conduct in your life or my life? Because if there is, that probably reveals that we have some error or some forgetfulness in our doctrine. Hmm. Now, go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. Here's another piece of the puzzle of what's going on in the second letter. So after verse 3, he says, you have excelled still more. He says, therefore, we ourselves, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God. He's talking about the church at Thessalonica. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So he's he's writing them and they're going through some hardship. And they they were confusing this hardship and affliction that, that the day of the judgment had come. And that's where their confusion was. And as we already read, he says, no, certain things have to happen. You're just going through some stuff. So persecutions and afflictions, along with the deception from chapter 2, right, in the form of a spirit or a message or a letter, caused some to mistakenly believe that the day of the Lord was here. And so in that error, they quit working. This is what's happening in verses 6 through 10. They just said, oh, okay, persecution, affliction, oh, must be the day of the Lord, I quit my job. And Paul's like, okay, no, and now they're leeching off their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just the best way to say it, and he's like, not cool. That's what's happening here. One commentary, I love it, says this, the offense was idleness, deliberate loafing, which led some to interfere in the work of others and to expect others to provide for their needs. This behavior was in direct disobedience to the apostles' teaching. The individuals in view were not those who could not work, understand that, but those who would not work. They were not to be supported by other Christians out of a sense of charity. And so the loving thing to do for those drones was to let them go hungry so that they would be forced to do right and go to work. No Christian who is able but unwilling to work should be maintained by others who labor on his behalf. That's really well put. That's what Paul is speaking into. So I think all of these puzzle pieces is simply a picture of our Christian walk. Go ahead and throw that next slide up. We awake each day battling these three things, right? From chapter one, verse four, persecutions and afflictions. Life just happens. Things happen to us, right? This is life. And then there's an enemy trying to deceive us, right? That's life. And then if we don't remember the truth, then our conduct is in question, right? So we have this hardship that's going on, this deception that's taking place. We lose sight of truth. Somehow we forget it. And then our conduct is in jeopardy. That's really all that's happening in 2 Thessalonians, all three chapters. This is the summary, if you will, of this letter. So with that... I want to give us four things that we're going to take away. Four declarations or questions. Two of them are declarations, two of them are questions. Here's the first one. The Word of God is both formative and corrective. The Word of God is both formative and corrective. It forms you, sure. It tells us how to be, how to be Christ-like. But when we're not, (laughs) then it'll also correct us if we let it. Go to 2 Timothy, just to your right of Thessalonians, is 1 and 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I, I just can't quote the, this, these two verses enough. They're so to me, they're just so powerful. They're so powerful. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. How much of Scripture? There you go. And it's profitable for four things. For teaching. See, that's the formative stuff. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Arguably, those last three are the corrective stuff. And I've shared this with you before. The way to remember verse 16 is it's all Scripture is inspired by God, and it tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. What's right? What's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. That's the note you should be taking right now. Always remember that. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. Scripture is both formative and corrective. Okay. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want you to see two words, one in verse 6 and one in verse 10. Look at verse 6. (laughs) These guys write to the church congregants, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from unruly people. Verse 10. So that first word is command in verse 6. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Wow. A command and an order. Okay. So let me ask you. Here's a great question. Do we embrace the corrective like we do the formative? Do we embrace the corrective part of Scripture as much as we embrace the formative part of Scripture? Speak truth to me, but don't correct me. Is that our attitude? Uh, Right? Speak the good stuff to me. Tell me, oh, you should be like this, oh, you should be like that. But don't correct me. Do we embrace? Paul says, we command you and we order you. Whew. Wow, okay, that Paul don't mess around, man. Does the church allow language like this? We command and we order. James, right? It's about me saying to James, James, I'm going to, me and the elders, we, we need to talk to you, man. We command you to do this and we order you to do that. You think James is excited about hearing that? Do you think the church in general embraces that kind of language? I don't know. I'm just asking. I wonder. I, it seems like less and less as time goes by that we embrace that kind of language that really is in Scripture. Would you allow Paul to order you how to behave? Would you allow Paul to come into your church, to come into your house and say, I order you and I command you? Would you allow that? If the answer is an immediate no, all the way up to a hesitant yes, then you've got to work that out with God. If Paul... C- if Paul came into your house and ordered you and commanded you, and if, you have an, and if you're not comfortable with that, right, either an immediate no or even a hesitant yes, you and God have got some talking to do. Think about that. Good stuff. <laughs> who do you take orders from? Excluding your wives, gentlemen, who do you take orders from? Do we dare read Scripture with the intent to take orders? We worship the Lord, our God. You know what Lord means? Everybody knows what Lord means, right? Master. Do we engage Scripture with the intent to take orders? Or are we just learning? Do we see God's Word as orders? And I just wonder how often we disobey His orders. That's the first takeaway. Here's the second one. Verse 6 self-explains what an unruly life looks like. The NIV calls it idle or disruptive. Verse 6 gives its own definition of what an unruly, disruptive life looks like. Let's read verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. He could have just stopped there. But he compares it. Here's the comparison. Who lives an unruly life and not according to truth, to Scripture. That's the opposite of an unruly life. If you want to know what an unruly life is, it's a life that's not lived according to Scripture. Go ahead and put that up. An idle, destructive, unruly life is anything not according to God's Word. That's what verse 6 tells us. Stay away from anybody who who leads an unruly life and not according to truth. So if you want, am I leading an unruly life? Well, if you're leading it according to this, you're good. If you're not leading life according to this, you're leading a disruptive, unruly, disorderly life. Wow, I love clarity in Scripture. Third question, takeaway. How serious do you and I, the church, take sin? (laughs) How serious do we take sin? Well, we'll talk about that. How serious do we take sin in ourselves? That's a great question. How serious do you take sin in your own life? And then how serious do we take sin in other people? Well, is that our place, Pastor? According to Scripture, it is. Ooh. Let's revisit verses 6 and 10. I'll read them again. We command you. He's talking to you guys. Each person sitting in a chair as a congregant, as a member of a church. Think of it this way. We command you, congregant, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from other congregants who lead an unruly life and not according to truth. Verse 10, when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is in sin, not willing to work, then he is not to eat. Deal with the sin, O congregant. Wow. So, for sure, (laughs) for sure, we expect the unrighteous to be unrighteous, but not the righteous. For sure, we expect the unrighteous to be unrighteous, but not the righteous to be unrighteous. So when the righteous are unrighteous, shouldn't we do something about it? Wow. Okay. So arguably, here's what's the trip. In verses 6 through 10, our five verses for today, I'm just, gonna, I'm just making this argument that verses 6 through 10 are not about the unruly, those that are listed in verse 6 and 10. Not about the unruly or the undisciplined. I'm even going to argue that it's not about the disciplined ones, Paul, Silas, and Timothy found in verses 7, 8, 9. I'm going to argue that these verses are about the church, the congregation, about taking sin serious in their brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's who he's talking to in those verses. He's saying, brothers, stay away from those who are leading a sinful life. Hmm. The church was obligated to deal with discipline. They were obligated, and Paul's reminding them of that. So, does it seem unloving or loving for the church to take sin serious? Does it seem loving or unloving for the church to take sin seriously? What's the answer? Loving. loving. It's Loving. That the church takes sin seriously. Keep in mind, the purpose for that. One commentary says this. I couldn't put it any perfectly, so I just copied. The ultimate goal of the church was to see the errant one repent, return to a Christ-like lifestyle, and return to the fellowship of the church. That's the purpose of it. So imagine... Imagine this. Imagine if we were to adopt the following slogan and put it on our building and in the sign on the corner. Welcome to the Rock Community Church, a congregation that takes sin seriously. What do you think? Yeah, I hope you like it because we're in print as we speak. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if that's much of a marketing campaign. Do you think people would show up or not show up? It's interesting I think on some level that would really scare people, but who knows? Like, it'd be interesting if people say, it's about time. I want to try that church, a church that takes sin serious. Maybe, right? Interesting, isn't it? Our fourth takeaway question. What is your tendency? To navigate life through rites or through sacrifice? Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. When Paul and Silas and Timothy were talking about themselves, they're a good example. Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to anybody. But it wasn't because we did not have the right to to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. As preachers... They had every right to be taken care of by that church, but they didn't exercise their right. They sacrificed. They had a right to burden them. They sacrificed their rights within the church. They gave when they could have easily received. And it's such a trick question for me when somebody asks me, pastor, what's the right thing to do? And I'll say, what do you have a right to do or what's the right thing to do? There's a different answer for that. And oftentimes, we want to know what I have a right to do. But we're not really interested in doing the right thing. And there is a difference. They had a right to be fed, Paul and Silas and Timothy. But they chose to not live out of their rights, but to live out of their sacrifice. Do you know who else did that in Scripture? Jesus Christ did exactly that. And we're going to close with a passage out of Philippians. Go to your left in Scripture. Philippians chapter two, such a powerful, powerful example of a man who lived out of his sacrifice, not out of rights. Chapter two, verses three through eight. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests also of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And check this out. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he had a right to do so. But he emptied himself, and he took the form of a bondservant, a sacrificial servant. And being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You guys, thank you so much. I just love doing that with you. God is so good. I'm going to invite up the worship team. They're going to close us in in song, and I'm going to pray. And if you need prayer after our service, please come visit our prayer team down in the corner. Let's pray. God, we are so incredibly, incredibly grateful and joyful for the clarity that is found in Scripture. Lord, you are serious about sin. So serious that you sent Christ to die for our sin. But Lord, we have to die to our sin as well. We have to take sin seriously. And so Lord, we ask that you would continue to help us to do that. Lord, I thank you for a church that embraces truth. Lord, we thank you for your word that is both formative and corrective. Lord, where we need to be corrected, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do just that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would use our brothers and sisters in Christ to nudge us out of our sin because they love us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Where's my table?